Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. When I was in third grade, um, as a, in the Tigert Elementary School in Parkersburg, West Virginia, tragedy struck one day. I'll never forget it. We're sitting in class, being third graders, doing what goofy third graders do, and our principal came into the room, and he had this very serious look on his face, and we knew immediately something was going on. And he asked our teacher to come to the hallway, and so they go out to the hallway, and we're watching them talk through the glass in the door. And clearly, it's very serious, and our teacher was crying, and um, it was, you know, we're all, of course, gripped by the drama that's going on outside our door. And then she came in with her eyes swollen and red and tears, and she asked three of our classmates to come, and they told them they needed to go to the principal's office right away. So they did. So it turns out, near our town there, they were building a nuclear power plant, and a bunch of the kids in our school, their dads were construction workers at the power plant building it, and that day there was a terrible tragedy. One of the 100-foot-tall concrete towers, the cooling towers, um, one of them had collapsed, killing a bunch of men, and several of the kids in our school lost their fathers that day. And uh, I'll never forget it. It was a very difficult time to grieve with my friends, fathers suddenly taken away, all that sort of thing. Tragedy, tragedy. It's a tragedy that nobody predicted, but it could have been prevented. Does that make sense? Like nobody, nobody woke up that day and said, oh, great, we're going to have a tower collapse and kill a bunch of guys. Like that wasn't the goal, that wasn't the plan. Nobody predicted it, but it could have been prevented. You see, the design of the tower, there was something flawed in the design. And as a result of that, it collapsed and many men died. Hear this, design is essential to success. Bad design equals failure. Good design equals success. And God has designed this world. He's the designer. And, and he designed it perfectly. And, and we've been tweaking with it. In our rebellion, the human race has been tweaking with the design. And you can tweak here and you can tweak there and you know it's... Forgivable here and there, but you reach a certain point where destruction is determined. And so we've been trying to get to God's design for the home, God's design for men and women in this short little series that we're doing in Scripture. And our Scripture memory verse is Proverbs chapter 24, verses um, 4 and 5. And it says this. Would you say this out loud with me? Read it out loud. By wisdom, a house is built. And through understanding, it is established. 
Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasure. You see that wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Wisdom is the right application of truth. It's not just knowing the right thing to do. It's actually knowing how to apply it and do it. That's wisdom. Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, he said, or 19 rather, I think he said, he said, wisdom is proved by her actions. How do you know it's wise? Well, look at the fruit. See, listen, don't listen to the experts. Watch them. Wisdom is proved by her actions. See, how's your marriage? Is it falling apart or is it rock solid? Wisdom, a marriage with wisdom, succeeds. How's your home? How are your kids? They falling apart they, or they're rock solid? See, wisdom is proved by our actions. Don't, don't just rattle off something you read or heard somewhere. I want to know what wisdom says about my home, about my family, about my finances. See, about my, how's your emotional life? You confused? You're rock solid? See, wisdom is proved by her actions. You know it's wise in the way that it works. And so wisdom, see, understanding, understanding is discernment. That's really what it means. It's the ability to see the nuances of a situation and to discern the right way to go as a result of that. How many of you know it's not always black or white? It's not always right or wrong. Sometimes there's good and best. And understanding the nuances between what's good and what's best and then making the decision appropriately, like that, that requires understanding. That's discernment. And then knowledge. Knowledge is, is relational. I know you, you know me. Knowledge. That's what the Bible word means. And so I think that's kind of cool because what are the rare and beautiful treasures in a home? The people. People in it. When a home is filled with knowledge, when I know the people in my home, and I value them, and I cherish them, and we know one another, and there's grace, and there's understanding, and there's acceptance, right, in our home, right? Rare and beautiful treasures. It's, it's awesome. So wisdom, understanding, knowledge, these build a home. And wisdom would tell you, you don't mess with the design, Wisdom will tell you, you can, you can cover the windows with something if you want to, but you don't mess with the foundation. You know, our, our house was, we had siding, new siding put on like, what, 12, 13 years ago now. It's been a while ago. And we've done different little things over the years you probably have to your house too. But there's one thing you've not changed, the foundation. Unless it's one of those crumbling ones, and then you've gotten a new one, haven't you? Because you need that. Why? Because that's critical to the design, <laughs> See, you can, ha, huh. so, it's like, a, I, I think about like, like our building, you know, we bought this church building eight, nine years ago now, praise the Lord, thank you God for it, but as we moved in, there's, we've noticed there's some design flaws, and one of them is we've got a flat roof, and, uh, but we also have a standing steel seam roof, and you don't put standing steel on a flat roof. It doesn't work, and so now when water pools, we get a drip in our lobby right there. It's really nice. We get the, the outdoors come inside every time it rains. 
see? And you know what? You can, you can why, why is that? What's well, a design flaw? See? And, and you can tweak with the design here and there, and hey, we can put up with a drip, but at some point, at some point, you tweak it just so far, and certain destruction and doom is bound to happen. And so, what does God have in mind for men and women? What's the design? And, uh, and, and what we're trying to do here is we're trying to cut past the cut past our cultural thinking because, you know, we can do that easily. It's, it, you can interpret the Bible through your own cultural lens, and that does happen. And so it's important to try to recognize that and try to even get past that to get to the essence of what's God saying. What's his heart? I want to see the design. Does that make sense? And to do that, we come right, we start in Genesis. Genesis is where it begins. And so that's where we begin today. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because there you have man and woman in their purest form without any societal constructs on them. Do you agree? You, there's nothing else going on. You got one guy, one lady in the middle of a garden. This is it. And they're handmade by God, and they're perfect, and they're without sin. So if we're going to understand man and woman, we've got to understand these two characters because they are the purest form of what we are meant to be. Does that make sense? See, a lot of times, a lot of smart people, and I use that air quotes, smart people, um, want you to, they, they love to look at, they love to, when we talk about gender differences, male, female, masculine, feminine, smart people love to say, oh, that's a social construct. See, if you can call it a social construct, then you can dismiss it because society changes. We all know society changes. So you go, oh, that's a social construct. That's so old. Well, I'd like to get past the social construct and get before society ever started and look at the first two human beings and say, what was it about these two that made masculine and feminine? Can we get to that? I think we can. So we start in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the whole world, and he does it by speaking it into existence. And then we come into Genesis chapter 2, and here's where God begins the work of forming the first people. It's the, it's the work of creating humanity. So Genesis 1 is a very general picture, and then Genesis 2 narrows it down, and you're talking more specifically about how God made people, how God made humanity. And you come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and we've reviewed some of this the last two weeks, but just real quick, 2 verse 18, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. He creates, he creates the man. And then he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. See, it's, it's not, I propose to you that there's more there than just you have a guy who's alone in a garden. That it's not good for man to be alone is a really central statement in the creation narrative. That God designed it so that in order for you to understand what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, you have to understand them in context with each other. You can't understand them in isolation. 
You can't separate men from women and think you can understand each of them. You understand them in light of one another. It's not good for man to be alone. Catch that. And so then we come and, and we see that God, God uh, creates the whole world with his word, and then he, draw, he, he comes to creating man, and he does something special when it comes to creating man. God, the Bible tells us he forms the dust out of the ground. What's our next verse there? This is probably where I should be following my notes. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, here's something cool. God speaks the rest of the creation into existence, didn't he? Let there be, let there be, there it is. And he creates all the animals and the stars and the moon, everything, just by the word of his mouth. But what does God do when it comes to making people? He gets intimate, doesn't he? God gets his hands dirty, literally. He takes the dirt and he forms it and he forms a man. Isn't that interesting? He didn't speak him into existence. He formed him into existence. And then here's the man laying there lifeless on the ground. It's just flesh, I guess, if you will. And it's not until God breathes into the man that he becomes a living being. So that's different as well. Because the rest of creation, God speaks it, and there it is. It's working. You know, let there be buffalo. Buffalo doing their thing right there. Bang. But that doesn't work that way when it comes to making man. God forms him. There he lays. And then God has to breathe into the man. And the man becomes a living being. You see, what sets humanity apart from the rest of creation is we have the very thumbprint and breath of the creator upon us. Do you see the, the unique privilege that is ours as human beings to bear the image of God in creation? We are God's crowning achievement in creation. He formed us with his hand. He breathed into us, and we live because he's breathed into us. You know, I was thinking about that this morning as I was looking at this, looking at my notes here, and I'm praying. I was like... God, these are just words on a page. Unless you breathe life into them. I, I go through this every week when I look at my sermon manuscript. I look at this, I, you know, and I read it and I practice it, and I'm like, eh. it feels dead to me. And, and it's often not until I stand here when the Spirit of God breathes onto the Word that it begins to take life. And I think that's what's happening there. You've got this flesh laying on the ground. It's just, and there's no life in it until God breathes into it. Isn't that beautiful? Now, here's something cool. God creates man. He's called man. Man is the Hebrew word Adama. A-D-A-M-A-H in English. Adama. It just means dirt. Man, man means dirt. 
ground. Why? Because God formed him out of the ground. And what's interesting about the text is that here's you and I are the ones, listen, this is important, you and I are the ones who call him Adam. The, the Bible only calls him Adam because we called him Adam. The, the, the text is pretty clear. There's no naming ceremony for him. He is just man. God forms him, breathes into him, man. We call him Adam because Adam sounds like Adama, the Hebrew word for dirt, man. So we gave him a nice name, Adam. But at first, he's, he's not, he's just man. And this is significant, guys. He's not given a name, but he's given a job. Because what does he do? God creates all the rest of the world, and God brings these creatures before man. And what does Genesis 2 tell us? Man names them. And whatever name he gave them, that's the name that they had. So this is kind of cool, too, because God uses his words to create And then he brings these creatures to man, and man uses his words to pronounce destiny. You see, in the the ancient times, a name really meant something. You you and I, not as much in our culture. But for them, if you're these, if you're these, the first, the Hebrew audience, you're first reading these words or hearing them, I mean, you, you immediately know. If, if this man is naming these creatures, he's actually defining their destiny. That's what he does. And we see it in Scripture. Abram, his name was changed to Abraham. Sarai, his wife, her name was changed to Sarah. Jedediah, you know who Jedediah was? I bet you can't guess it. Solomon. You know, I thought that was his only name. Nope, Jedediah was his name. And then Solomon. You have Saul into Paul. You've got Simon into Peter. We've got examples of this happening like Joseph. Joseph was taken captive into Egypt, remember? And what did the Egyptians do? They gave him an Egyptian name. Why? because you're no Hebrew anymore. We're going to turn you into an Egyptian. We're going to give you an Egyptian name named after an Egyptian god. You see what they were doing? They're rewriting, attempting to rewrite Joseph's destiny by giving him a name. My point is simply this. Names are important. And when the Bible tells you that this man is naming these creatures, the Bible's telling you that he was determining their destiny. He was defining their future, where they were going. He was naming them. And this is huge. I believe that this speaks to partly God's purpose in masculinity. This is what masculine does. Masculine defines destiny. It gives the name. It calls out what God has put in. That's what masculine does. Also, notice this. The man himself is not given a name, but he's given a job. So we know what he does. We know kind of what he, who he is by what he does. It's no surprise, really, that a lot of men tend to define ourselves by our work. That goes all the way back to the beginning, guys. 
I mean, you, we knew the man not by his name. We knew him by his job as a first guy. So I don't know that there's anything wrong in that necessarily. That's part of the wiring in a man. We identify ourselves by the work that we do. And so, I don't know, I thought that was a pretty cool insight. So, um, yeah. This is where I better do this. I'm sorry. I don't want to miss stuff. Okay? But, friends, I think this is why we have a whole generation of lost young people who, who don't know where they're going. We're living with the, one of the most fatherless generations in history. And, we, and no father equals no clue. Because the role of masculine is to define destiny. Dads, if you're a dad in the room this morning, you've got a very big job. Your job is to see what God is doing in the life of your children and to call that out, to help them to see it. That's your job as the dad. I'm not saying you live your childhood dreams through your kid. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. We all know guys that have done that. It's not good. I'm saying your job is to see what God has put within that person that incredible person, your job is to see what that is and call it out of them and point them to the destiny that God has designed them for. See, that's part of what masculine does. Our culture, you see, we have this, our culture is now attempting to define children. And look at the mass confusion. Culture has no business defining human beings. That's a job that God created men to do. That's your job, guys. This is your job with your kids. Listen, and friends, I know some of you had a biological father that failed you. I want to just say, welcome to church. You know, welcome to the family of God. Because um, this, this is the family of God, and we've got some godly men, you know, running around this place. And if you get around them, and I'm telling you, you'll, I'm telling you, you'll, be, you'll benefit from it. They'll help you to see. They'll, you rub shoulders with these guys. They'll help you to see what God has defined and what God has destined you for in your life. So masculinity is, first, it's, it's, in, it's inherently about calling out destiny. I think the second piece about masculinity is this that we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is masculinity is inherently responsible. In Genesis 3, we, after Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. And we come to verse 9 in Genesis chapter 3. And God's looking for them in the garden. And do you remember the scene? I hope that you can follow along with what I'm saying. God looks at them in the garden, and he's looking for them. And God calls out for them. And I think the text is interesting. The text tells us that the Lord God called to who? The man. The Lord God called to the man. Where are you? Now, that's interesting, I think, because the man is called to lead. Look, at Eve was tempted, but Adam was responsible. But ladies, Eve wasn't off the hook. Because you come to Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, God speaks to Eve, and God says, hey, what is this you have done? So she's responsible, but you go back to Genesis 3, verse 17, a couple verses down, and God speaks to Adam again. And God reveals, actually, to Adam the, the, one of the horrible consequences of 
his sin. God actually, and he reveals the, the only victim in the entire fall narrative. It's not man, it's not woman, it's the earth, the ground. And God says this to Adam, to Adam, not to Eve. He says, because of the cursed, the cursed is the ground because of you, he says in Genesis 3.17. So the earth did nothing wrong, but it fell with us. Ironically, the ground is cursed because of Adam's sin, not Eve's. Adam's judged twice as harshly as Eve in this. She's only asked once, what have you done? Adam has asked twice. Why? Well, because taking responsibility and being responsible is inherent in masculinity. It's not to say that women are not responsible. That's not what I'm saying, girls. It's just that there's something inherent in the masculine that resonates with the call to being responsible. If, if you want to strip a man of his dignity, if you want to make him less than a man, you take away his responsibility. Turn him into a victim. Tell him his problems are everybody else's fault. And you will weaken that man and you will strip him of his strength, strip him of his dignity. Listen, we are driven as men by duty and honor. Like these are things that resonate in the soul of a guy. Again, not that they don't resonate in women. I'm just saying that they resonate loudly in the heart of a man. Last week, uh, we noted that woman is the only part in all of God's creation that receives two names. Remember that? She's called woman in verse, chapter 2, verse 23. And then she's called Eve in chapter 3, verse 20. Interesting. Because man doesn't get a name. But woman gets two. There's two naming ceremonies and not one naming ceremony for, for the man. Woman, right? So, and, and both of them speak to something about her. Woman, woman speaks to her origin. She came out of man. Eve speaks to her destiny. You will be the giver of life, life giver. That's what it says. So what I failed to show us last Sunday is this. I failed to show us the timeline, and this is super cool. When did Eve receive her name Eve? If you got your Bible open, take a look at it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. It takes place after they had sinned. After they had sinned. And then God comes to them, and he reveals to them the consequences and the curse of their sin. And it's a bad day. Do we agree? A bad day for everybody. And yet, out of the ashes of that bad day, You've got the man turning to his wife, chapter 3, verse 20 says, and he says, you'll be called Eve because you will be the mother of all the living. Now, here's what's happening. If you go look at the curse, the woman gets cursed, right? Her, the consequences of her sin are huge. There will be pain and childbearing, and there's going to be a war between your seed, Eve, and the seed of the enemy, the seed of the devil. There's going to be constant war between your seed and his seed, and it's going to be painful childbearing, he says. 
You don't think that's a little daunting for Eve? And I love this scene. It's in that context that the man turns to his wife and he does what men do. He calls out destiny. He endorses out of the ashes and out of the darkness and out of the pain of that curse. He looks at his wife and he says, you're going to be Eve because you're the mother of the living. He calls her to her destiny. It's awesome. I think it's awesome. Um, I think it's fascinating that a few moments ago, Adam is blaming his wife for their fall. If you go up in Genesis 3, up a few verses, and Adam's like, you know, the woman you gave me, she did this, Lord. One minute he's blaming her, and the next minute his tune has changed, and he says, honey, you're going to be the giver of life. Wow. He's doing what men do. Men endorse, we endorse, we call out destiny, set the course of action. What role does masculinity play in the world? It's an encourager, it's a vision caster, it's an endorsement of others. This is what Adam did for Eve. It's seeing past the ugly stuff that's in this present and it's pointing to a grand and glorious future, right? We, we set that, we declare the destiny. We declare the destiny and femininity gives life to the destiny. Both are needed. They work together. The best way to illustrate this, and I sure hope I can do this quickly, the best way to illustrate this is to look in the book of Proverbs. We have the entire book of Proverbs that illustrates the way that masculine and feminine go together. And so this is where we've got to buckle up. Um, but, you know, normally we don't think of Proverbs as a story, but the book of Proverbs actually does tell a story. It's not just a bunch of of quotable quotes, although it certainly is that. But if you step back and give the book of Proverbs a bird's eye view, you can see the story, the plot line emerge. And when you see the plot line in the book of Proverbs, that's when you see how masculine and feminine actually complement one another and work together. So let me zip through this super quick. So in the book of Proverbs, you've got six characters, three good and three bad. The first character is the father. He's the teacher. He's called the teacher. And Proverbs 1.1 tells us who the teacher is. It's Solomon. It's, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, right? So, so he, he is the teacher in the story. And a lot of times we don't, get to, we don't notice him because he's the narrator. He's the one doing all, a lot of the talking in the story. So, you know, you typically don't see the narrator, but he's there. And the teacher has a wife. He's married, and her name is Wisdom, Lady Wisdom. If you notice in Proverbs, wisdom is always feminine. She's referred to as a she. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 6, the royal father figure, the teacher, he says, don't forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, she will watch over you. Proverbs 9.1, wisdom has built her house. So wisdom is portrayed in feminine terms throughout the book of Proverbs. So you have teacher and you have lady wisdom. And these are sort of the, they're the call, call them the mom and the dad. And then they have a child. This person is called my son. 
And my son is referenced a bunch of times in the book of Proverbs. Oftentimes it says, you know, my son, if you do this, turn your ear to wisdom. Proverbs 3.1, my son, don't forget my teaching. My son, don't let wisdom out of your sight. My son, keep your father's command. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. My son, my son. So you have teacher and lady wisdom with my son. And you and I are the my son, by the way. We're, we're, we qualify as that in the text. Now, each of these characters, they have a foil. They have someone, they have an antagonist in the story. The father, teacher, he has an antagonist. It's wickedness, sin. Matter of fact, he tells his son, he says, my son, hey, if sinful men entice you, don't listen to them. He's, he's warning the son against sin, against wickedness. And then Lady Wisdom, she has her antagonist also. It's folly. In fact, folly is called a woman. Folly is an unruly woman, says. And folly is given feminine terms throughout the book of Proverbs. Okay? And you always see Lady Wisdom, you always see teacher warning against sin and wisdom warning against folly. And then the son also has a foil, an antagonist, and that's the simpleton. The simpleton. The waywardness of the simple will kill them, Proverbs says. And the simpleton. So the simple, the word for simple is interesting. This is kind of cool. The, the Hebrew word for simple actually means open, gullible, gullible. So those who look at a teaching, at Scripture's teaching about masculine and feminine, feminine and judge it as a social construct, and, oh, that's so old-fashioned. You need to be open, man. There's new stuff nowadays. Everything you know, is new. The Bible would not call that open. They would call that simple. That person's a simpleton. You're tweaking with the design. You're asking for destruction is what you're asking for. So he, you, see, you see these six characters? Teacher, wisdom, my son. Teacher has sin, wickedness. Wisdom has lady folly. My son has simpleton. Now, look at the structure of the book of Proverbs. From Proverbs chapters 1 through 7, you have the teacher, he's speaking. And the teacher is singing the praises of wisdom. The teacher is saying, hey, you want to get wisdom? She is awesome, and he's talking about how great wisdom is. Chapters 1 through 7. T uh, wisdom has a few little words she speaks in chapters two, chapter 2, um, but it's all under, like, it's all teacher is promoting wisdom. And then chapter 8 and chapter 9 in Proverbs, Lady Wisdom starts to speak. And she actually has both those chapters. It's a, it's a speech narrative. And Lady Wisdom calls out, it says. She calls out from the city gate. Hey, come on, everybody. Come and listen to my wisdom. And, and she, in chapter 8, she promotes herself. It's kind of like, hey, do you know kings? You know how kings make wise rulings, how good they make good rulings? And you know how a king that rules with justice and kindness and all that good stuff? Like, you know why he does that? Because of me. Wisdom. I'm the one that makes it happen. She's, she totally is like... You know, I'm, and then not only that, but she said, here, I think this is cool. In chapter 8, she, wisdom says, you know when God created the world? Actually, he created wisdom first. 
And then he created the rest of the world with wisdom. So Lady Wisdom has quite a resume, doesn't she? But that connects to the creation narrative. Remember? What's Eve's name mean? She's life giver. Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom says, hey, I was there giving life to the earth. When God created, I was there. Do you see this? I hope you see it, because it's really important. Because what we're, again, what I'm trying to do is this, friends. I'm trying to cut through our Western thinking, right, about men, women, home, and all that, and just trying to get to the essence here of what masculine and feminine really are all about in God's design. That's really what I'm attempting to do. I hope you catch that. So, so do you see that with feminine, that, that Lady Wisdom is, she's, life, she's always life giver, always. And then, and then, so Proverbs 8, Proverbs 9, Lady Wisdom is talking. And then starting in Proverbs 10, and you go all the way to Proverbs 31, you have teacher and wisdom. They are speaking together, and they're dispensing their, their wisdom, their, their lessons about life for you and for me, the son, right? And they're teaching us through the rest of the book. And then you come to Proverbs 31. And I know immediately a lot of you Christian women groan. You're like, oh, Proverbs 31. <sighs> right? Oh, you're not going to bring that up. Okay, Proverbs 31, woman. Here it goes. Brace myself. Listen, here's, let me, what if, what if maybe we're not seeing Proverbs 31 quite the right way? What if Proverbs 31 is actually meant to be the living illustration of the whole story and plot line in Proverbs? In other words, if in Proverbs you have teacher and wisdom, mother and father, husband and wife, teaching my son, and then you come to Proverbs 31, and now you see that put together. And so you have, so you have the father, you have the husband in Proverbs 31, verse 11. He places his full confidence in his wife. Does that sound like Proverbs 1 through 7? Proverbs 1 through 7, the teacher's singing the praises. She is awesome, man. She's incredible. Whoo, you better listen to her. She's awesome, right? Proverbs 31, verse 11, her husband has full confidence in her. Same thing. And then Proverbs 31, she's, her husband's respected at the city gate. He's at the very center of the town, leading the way in verse 23. But she's not absent Proverbs 31, 31, her works bring her praise at the city gate. Why? Because her husband's there. She's there. Remember what Jesus said? Wisdom is proved by her actions. So her actions prove that she's there. Right? Her works bring her praise at the city gate. And, and then in Proverbs chapter 8, we're even told that wisdom stands at the city gate and cries out. Now, come back to, let me, go, let me take us back to Proverbs 9 for a second. Proverbs 9, we have two houses being built. Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly each build a house in Proverbs chapter 9. In Proverbs chapter 9, the beginning part, Lady Wisdom, she builds her house and she invites the simple to come. Come on in, everybody. And her house is filled with life. 
Her house is filled with righteousness and goodness. and I mean, it's just the best place ever. And then at the same time, you've got Lady Folly. And Proverbs 9 says she also builds a house. And she also gives an invitation. She also invites the simple. Hey, come on in, everybody. She goes, stolen goods are really sweet. You're going to like this. I just ripped it off last week. And then it says, by the way, Lady Folly, her house leads to death. Lady Wisdom, her house leads to life. So now you and I are sitting here with the choice. Will I follow the way of Lady Wisdom or will I follow the way of Lady Folly? The way of Lady Wisdom leads to life. The way of, the way of Lady Folly leads to death. What will I do? And what's the primary difference between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly? One of the big differences between the two is the endorsement of teacher. Lady Folly doesn't need a man. She's an independent operator. She just shows up and does her thing. And she just operates on her own. Lady Wisdom, part of her, the secret of her strength is the endorsement of teacher. Teacher saying she's incredible. And Wisdom is, is taking that endorsement and running with it. And we see the same thing happening in Proverbs 31. We see this husband at the city gate. His wife is being praised at the city gate. Why? Because he's endorsing her. And, and she's, you know, they're working together. It's not in isolation. They're working together. You have teacher and wisdom partner together. Masculine and feminine partner together. And they're teaching the next generation, my son, in the way of the Lord. Um, go back here. Sorry. All righty. We're almost done. Here we go. So Proverbs 31, my friend, is, a, is the portrait of teacher and wisdom as a married couple. And now we see how masculine and feminine are designed by God to work together. Do you see what Genesis means when it says it's not good? for man to be alone. If we're going to understand God's design for men and women, we've got to understand them together and how they complement one another. I want to just put one more piece on this, kind of as the cherry on the Sunday, if you will. Adam spoke these words, and he helped Eve to see her destiny. Didn't we said that earlier in Genesis 3? Your name is Eve. You're going to be a life giver. The teacher in Proverbs, he does the same for Lady Wisdom, doesn't he? She's incredible. You better listen to her. Listen to your mother. She knows what she's talking about. That's Proverbs 1 through 7. This was illustrated by the husband in Proverbs 31. We just saw it. The husband praises his wife at the city gate. He has full confidence in her. She's rocking. And then this is also what Jesus does for his girl, the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26. It says this, husbands, love your wives. Look at the language here. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at that. He gave himself up for her. He did for the church what Adam did for Eve, what the teacher does for wisdom, what the husband in Proverbs 31 did for the wife. Gave himself up for her. 
to make her holy, to, to benefit her, to cleanse her by the washing with water. How? Through the Word. It's His Word. His Word that calls out her destiny. See? Ephesians brings this full circle. You've got Jesus as the perfect man. And what does He do for the woman in His life, for the church? He loves her. He lays down His life for her to raise her up. He uses His Word to cleanse her, to help her to reach her destiny. Isn't that incredible? Men, men use our... Here's the key. We're first created. And as first created, we use our position to give endorsement to women. We use words to define destiny. We use names to give shape to futures. We're the teacher speaking truth, defining destiny. Women are lady wisdom receiving the strength that comes from that endorsement and taking the truth and bringing life to it. That's how we work together. This makes me wonder what could happen if we as the people of God could get a hold of this and our men and women could begin to embrace our roles given to us by God. Ladies, cherish the endorsement of men. Hear it. Seek it. Ask for it. Don't despise it. And men, Respect the contribution of women as life givers. Endorse, encourage, see the destiny, call it out. You know, die to yourself and become a champion to her. But listen, let me clarify this. It doesn't mean, guys, that you just go along with everything she says to do because uh, that's what I got to do, I guess. Die to myself. No, 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 no. No, your job, remember, is to see what God is doing. That's your job, to see what God is doing. And, and this is the standard that you work with as you identify and call out destiny. So you steer based on that. You're calling out destiny. She breathes life into it. And the two work together powerfully. You know what this requires? It requires what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20 says. Submit. To one another out of reverence for Christ. Listen, our, our culture is, is uh, tweaking. Can we say it that way as a nice way? With men and women, masculine and feminine. It's confusing it all over the place. And I, I don't mean to be a prophet of doom, but I'm just saying. You can only mess with the design so much before destruction comes. And I just wonder if the church, if we as the people of God, could actually be a, a shining example to the rest of the world as to how men and women can live in relationship to one another, complementing, mutually submitted to one another. You know, women valuing the endorsement of their men, men endorsing that ladies build them up, just cheerleading one another. Whew. You know, and you know what? The world is going to say, oh, you guys are old fashioned. The simpleton is going gonna, is gonna to say that you're, you're, just a, you're, you're just old fashioned. 
hey, listen, I keep, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about that verse in 2 Peter. He says, he says, live, this is a quote, I think it's in 2 Peter. Live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, the world's going to talk smack and let them talk smack. But there's one thing that they can't do. May, may it be such that the one thing they can't do is argue with our results. Again, an amen on that? Like, let it be that the one thing they can't do is argue with our results. You can, you can say we're old-fashioned, you can talk whatever you want to say about us, that's fine. But watch my wife and I love each other and envy it. And then at some point I pray that you'll be humble enough to come and take notes and learn from it. And say, you know, maybe we've been tweaking too much here and we need to come back to the design. Yes, you do. This is the message, friends, that we have to bring to the world around us. See this? So, God, I pray that we get this right. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.